Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to uh, encourage you to open it to John chapter 12. We're back in the Gospel of John. We went back into it last week. We're going to be in it for some time now. Uh, community groups are now kind of up and running. Uh, we'll be studying these passages each week in those groups, so would encourage you to be part of that. But we're going to jump right into things this morning. I'm going to begin by reading the passage. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 11, where Mary anointed Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at uh, the triumphal entry, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 26. This is God's word, and this is what it says to us. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, many of, uh, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew, Philip, or Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So I know that's a passage we're maybe used to hearing on Palm Sunday. I actually think it's good to hear it on a different day and to reflect on the significance of what we read here. You know, the last couple of weeks have given us an opportunity to kind of look into something or to watch something that we have not seen in a long, long time. The funeral of Queen Elizabeth was attended by some 2,000 dignitaries and heads of state from all over the world. The mile-and-a-quarter funeral procession was led by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police from Westminster Abbey to Wellington Arch. More than a million people lined the streets of central London to pay their respects during that funeral procession. It's estimated that a billion people worldwide tuned in to the live stream or TV uh, to watch the funeral. We don't have events like that very often. Now, there will no doubt be a coronation ceremony for King Charles in the upcoming months, and coronation ceremonies are marked by lots of tradition, lots of symbolism that happens in those ceremonies. Again, it's been a long time since we've seen one. Queen Elizabeth's coronation ceremony took place back in 1953. Most of us either weren't alive yet or not old enough to be interested in that event. 
the coronation ceremony for Queen Elizabeth took 14 months of planning by the Coronation Commission. That ceremony included a procession, again, through the streets of London before an estimated crowd of 3 million people. And once inside Westminster Abbey, the Queen's coronation included prayers and hymns and oaths. And the Queen was then anointed with oil by the priest in a tradition that dates all the way back to the Old Testament. Well, we have a sort of impromptu coronation ceremony that takes place here in John chapter 12. Now, we've broken the chapter up into a number of different sections, but if you want the full picture of what is going on here in John 12, you need to treat it as a whole. Jesus' coronation ceremony begins with an anointing. Mary anoints Jesus. And then this procession takes place where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, from a human perspective, the coronation of Jesus seems like a spontaneous event. I mean, Mary's actions and the actions of the crowd here as they wave their palm branches and line the streets just seems like a proper response to for those who began to recognize that Jesus was their rightful king. But I think it's fitting that this was a different type of coronation ceremony because Jesus was a very different kind of king. So as we consider this passage, we're going to do so by looking at four aspects of Jesus' kingdom. And the first thing we ought to notice is the nature of Jesus' kingship. So if John 12 is, in fact, Jesus' coronation ceremony, what does it tell us about Jesus? Well, verse 12 gives us the background. It says... The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And then verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The crowd that's described here, it's described as a large crowd. And I'm not sure we really appreciate just how large this crowd would have been. Passover was one of the major festivals on Israel's calendar. People made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem from all over Israel. Now, there were about 100,000 residents of, or in Jerusalem at this time. But during a feast like Passover, that number would swell to many times the actual population of the city. The first century Jewish historian Josephus estimated that at one Passover in the first century... There were some 2.7 million people in attendance. Now, most scholars think that number is probably exaggerated, but even with an exaggerated number, most scholars believe that the number of people in attendance at a given Passover ceremony may well have been upwards of a million people. Whatever the actual size, this large crowd was excited to hear that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The other Gospels give us more detail, but verse 2 helps us understand that this crowd lined the streets, they waved palm branches, and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So their actions and their words tell us a lot. Their words are a quotation of Psalm 118.25, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
But what was with the palm branches? Why did they start waving these palm branches and lining the streets with them as Jesus approached? What did that symbolize? There's an interesting background to that. So palm branches were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament, uh, more associated with with tabernacles than with Passover in the past. There were specific instructions given about the use of palm branches in the book of Leviticus for the Feast of Tabernacles. But there were some historical developments that gave palm branches a symbolic meaning in Israel by this time. They became sort of just almost like the maple leaf or almost like the the Canadian flag in a sense. And it's not hard to see why the crowd would have grabbed them here and waved them as Jesus approached. So they're not scripture, but the intertestamental books of Maccabees give us some background on what happened between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament or the the coming of Jesus. 1 Maccabees 13 contains a reference about how palm branches were used to celebrate Simon when he drove the Syrians Out of Israel. And that reference says this on the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered the citadel with shouts of praise, waving the waving of palm branches, the playing of harps and cymbals and lyres, and the singing of hymns and canticles, because a great enemy of Israel had been crushed. So in that instance, the waving of palm branches was associated or it was used in celebration of a military victory. One of Israel's enemies had been driven out and the people responded by waving these palm branches. There's another reference to their use in the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. In 2 Maccabees 10, 7, it says, carrying rods entwined with leaves, beautiful branches and palms... They sang hymns of grateful praise to him who had successfully brought about the purification of his own place. And his own place is a reference to the temple. And that reference is especially interesting when you consider it in light of the fact or when you read the same account in the gospel of Matthew. Because the very next thing Jesus does after the triumphal entry, is he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers and the merchants who were selling goods there. And those references help us understand the kinds of expectations the crowd might have had as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. On that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the crowd got some things right and they got some things wrong. They rightly understood that they ought to give Jesus a welcome that was fit for a king. But they misunderstood the nature of his kingdom. They had nationalistic hopes, right? They thought Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem and kick some Roman keister. That was their expectation. This is going to happen now. And you can understand why they wanted a king like that. The Roman occupation meant that the Jews felt like prisoners in their own land. So they had a list of expectations for their new king. And like most people, they weren't so much looking for a king who would rule over them. They were looking for a king who would do what they told him to do or what they wanted him to do. So fast forward 2,000 years and not much has changed. 
I read an article this week interviewing Londoners on their hopes for their new king, Charles III. They interviewed a cross-section of people. They interviewed some students at Queen Elizabeth High School in Bromyard, Herefordshire. A student by the name of Elsa said she hopes he will speak openly about issues like climate change and charities. Another student named Kinga, he sounds like characters in a Disney movie, but this student Kinga said he hopes King Charles will be willing to represent us on modern issues. Ray Massey, one of the adults interviews, said, well, he'll put the great back in Great Britain. I'm certain of that. Another interview subject, Heather Reed said, we want to see changes to the legal system and a complete overhaul of the education system. None of this is surprising. Progressive people want a progressive king. People want their king to do what they tell him to do. And those living in the first century had their list of demands too. But Jesus upends all of that. His actions make it clear he's actually coming as a different kind of king. Jesus came into the city riding on a donkey. And this was deliberate. This is the only reference in the Gospels to Jesus riding and not walking. And on this occasion, he chose to ride into the city on a donkey. Now, we've been over this before. But a man's chosen method of transportation tells us something about the man, right? So if you drive a minivan, your chosen method of transportation tells us that you are a family man, right? We all understand that. That's the only reason you would drive one. If you drive a two-seater convertible, your chosen method of transportation is telling the world that you're going through a midlife crisis, right? If you drive a pickup truck with a gun rack, you are telling the world, I'm a redneck, right? This is how this works. In the same way, Jesus' chosen method of transportation was telling us something about him. Jesus didn't come riding into Jerusalem on a war horse. There will come a day where he will do that. Revelation 19 gives us this picture. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That day will come. But at this point, he enters the city riding on a donkey. And John tells us that this was in fulfillment of a prophecy from hundreds of years earlier from the prophet Zechariah. Verse 15 says this. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's Zechariah's prophecy. That ancient prophecy actually forms the background to what we're reading here in John chapter 12, but I think it's important not to pass over that too quickly. The specific words of prophecy that are cited by John are from Zechariah 9, verse 9, but it's interesting to keep reading in Zechariah chapter 9. Listen to verses 9 to 11 of that chapter. Here's what the prophet said. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So you can leave that up for a minute. Because that prophecy communicated at least three things about this king who was to come. It communicated firstly that this king would come in humility, humble, mounted on a donkey. The second thing it communicated is that this king would come with an announcement of peace, not war. And that this peace was not just for Israel, but for all nations, right? He will speak peace. To the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea and to the very ends of the earth. And this prophecy is also associated with the blood of God's covenant that will result in the release of prisoners. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. Can you see how Jesus fulfills all of that? Jesus is the humble king. He's the one who comes in the form of a servant. He's the one who takes on the likeness of man and becomes obedient to the point of death. Jesus is the king who offers salvation to all people and to all nations. He is the one whom before a great multitude on one day will come, a multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and will stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is the King who was willing to shed his own blood, the blood of his covenant with us, to rescue his people And to set them free. That's the nature of Jesus' kingship. This is what ought to fill our hearts as we think about Jesus as king. Second thing we learn about here is the scope of Jesus' kingdom. So this massive crowd lines the street as Jesus passes by. But not everyone who was in the crowd was a supporter. All four Gospels tell us about the reaction of the religious leaders at this point. And John includes a detail that's not found in the other accounts. Look at verse 19. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, this is as they see this massive crowd, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Their point is, look, we are getting nowhere by trying to stop Jesus, by debating with him engaging in conversation with him, we have to do something more drastic. Otherwise, the whole world is going to be going after him and following him. They want Jesus stopped. Now, you and I know the end of the story. We know that ultimately their efforts to stop Jesus or to stop Jesus' ideas from infecting the world by having him killed will ultimately be unsuccessful. 
while they will succeed in having Jesus executed, his following grows even larger. And so the religious leaders might have been the first, but they were not the last to take this approach. History shows that those who have tried to rid their world of the memory of Jesus have been utterly unsuccessful. In the 1920s, as part of their communist propaganda, the Soviet Union formed the League of the Militant Godless. In 1929, their magazine cover showed two workers dumping Jesus out of a wheelbarrow to symbolize the dawn of the day of industrialization. We don't need Jesus anymore. But the league's leader, Yemelian Yaroslavsky, grew frustrated at the stubbornness of the Christian faith. He said, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. Here in John 12, the Pharisees actually speak better than they know when they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, they're saying more than just there goes the neighborhood. They're recognizing that the appeal of Jesus goes well beyond the borders of Israel. It's no accident that immediately on the heels of the Pharisees saying, look, the whole world has gone after him. In verse 19, we come to this in verse 20, where it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. I alluded to this already when we looked at the prophecy from Zechariah 9, but the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was not a localized kingdom. He wasn't just aiming to be the king of Israel. His rule will be from sea to sea and to the very ends of the earth. Even the disciples were confused about this. In fact, even after Jesus was raised from the dead, they still had confusion about this. They were still initially thinking only in terms of Israel. Acts chapter 1 records this question from the disciples as they meet with the risen Jesus. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, again, this is not surprising. I mean, we're all conditioned to think of our own circle, our family, our community, our country. That's not a bad thing in and of itself. But the kingdom that Jesus has in mind is a universal kingdom. It's for all nations. And if we were to keep reading in Acts chapter 1, we would discover Jesus saying this to his disciples just two verses later. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. End of the earth. Now that verse, actually, if you know the book of Acts, that verse, chapter 1, verse 8, actually functions like an outline for the book of Acts. Because chapters 1 to 8 focus on the birth of the church and its early growth in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 13 describe how the gospel began to spread through all Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 to chapter 28 helps us understand how the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus' kingdom is a universal kingdom. It's a massive kingdom, much bigger than anything we can imagine. Now, we would have actually been really hard-pressed to predict that it would grow so big in the days immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection. Acts chapter 1 
Verse 15 tells us, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. 120 people, that's it. Maybe you've seen the popular memes that get posted on social media with sort of two pictures and two captions. The first picture has the caption, how it started, and the second picture has the caption, how it's going. So the picture will be something like, you know, Steve Jobs developing Apple computers in his garage. That's how it started. And the second picture will be a picture of the massive Apple headquarters. That's how it's going. If we were to employ that same tactic here, how it started is just 120 people. I mean, that's it. And how is it going? Well, today, more than a billion people claim allegiance to Jesus from all over the globe. The whole world has gone after him. See, I think sometimes we think too small when we think about the church. There are times where we wonder, is the kingdom still growing? In 1945, the eminent German pastor and theologian Helmut Thielke stood in the ruined choirs of his church in Hamburg to preach preach on the kingdom of God, and he said this, who can still believe today that we are developing toward a state in which the kingdom of God reigns in the world of nations, in culture, and in the life of the individual?" The earth has been plowed too deep by the curse of war. The streams of blood and the tears have swollen all too terribly. Injustice and bestiality have become all too cruel and obvious for us to consider such dreams to be anything but bubbles and froth. Tilke's despair came from standing in the ruins of a church. But there is always a bigger picture. Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. And Jesus has assured us that even the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. It's a massive kingdom. The third thing we ought to notice in this passage is the symbol of Jesus' reign. So this passage takes a bit of a dark turn with verses 23 and 24. And it says there, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, if we just stopped at verse 23, we wouldn't think there's any darkness at all. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But what exactly does that mean? Well, that little phrase, the hour or my hour, is found frequently in the Gospel of John. What makes this reference here in John 12 special is that up until this moment, it has always been a future event. So in John 2, when there is this week-long wedding festival and they run out of wine, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, look, they've run out of wine, and Jesus responds with this. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, right? It's future. You'll have to go back and listen to the message on John 2 to understand all that was going on there. But in John 7, we read this. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
In a similar way, in John 8, we read this. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So my hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So again, if we just stop there, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, we might think, well, that's great news. He's going to be crowned as king. Everyone is going to submit to him. This is going to be his 15 minutes of fame or his one shining moment. But that's not what the hour refers to in the Gospel of John. Read through the Gospel of John and what you will find is that the hour that he's talking about is the hour of his death. That, Jesus says, is the hour of his glorification. That's why Jesus goes on to say, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what is the symbol of Jesus' reign? If you had to put it in a picture format, what picture would you use? Well, the answer to that question is the symbol of Jesus' reign is the cross. That's what he's alluding to here when he speaks about this kernel of wheat falling to the ground and dying. And in fact, you cannot read very far in the New Testament without bumping into the cross. I told you last week that all of these chapters, from 12 to the end of the Gospel of John, all of them are taken up with the final week of Jesus' life. And in every single chapter, there's reference after reference to his impending death. I think most people know that the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith, but I'm not sure we've really stopped or we stop often enough to think about just how odd that is. Most religions and ideologies have some type of visual symbol that represents a significant feature of their beliefs. So the lotus flower, for example, is often used as a symbol for Buddhism. Its wheel-like shape is thought to signify the cycle of birth and death and the emergence of beauty out of muddy waters. Modern Judaism has adopted the Star of David as its symbol. The hexagram shape of the star is made by combining two equilateral triangles. It's meant to picture God's covenant with King David, that the Messiah would descend and that his throne would be established forever. Islam is symbolized by a crescent and a star. It's really associated with the sovereignty of the ancient city of Byzantium, which is modern-day Israel. Other ideologies all have their symbols. The communists adopted the hammer and sickle as a symbol of the union of the industrial worker and the peasant. Every faith, every ideology has a symbol, and the symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. Now just think about that for a minute. It could have been any number of different symbols chosen to represent the Christian faith. I mean, the church could have chosen a manger to to communicate the importance of Jesus' incarnation, that he entered into this world as a baby. That could have been the symbol. We could have chosen a throne to represent his kingship, as we were talking about today. We might have chosen the symbol of a dove to symbolize that just as the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, so now he descends on us. 
We could have chosen the empty tomb as the symbol of the Christian faith, a large stone rolled away from its opening to proclaim Christ's resurrection. All of those are essential aspects of the Christian faith, but it is the cross that stands at the center of it all. And Jesus says, truly, truly, my hour has come. The hour for me to be glorified has come. And unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground or the earth and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, the reign of Jesus is established by his death and resurrection. Now, we might think of the cross as only being associated with Jesus' death, but it actually symbolizes both. I mean, the cross is empty. Within Roman Catholicism, there are depictions of the crucifix, Jesus hanging on the cross, but as best as we can tell, there were no crucifixes before the 6th century. Jesus' reign is symbolized by his death and resurrection. He is the kernel of wheat that has fallen into the ground and died but also sprouted to produce much fruit. So the final thing we ought, to, we ought to consider from this passage is the implication for Jesus' followers or Jesus' subjects. If he's the king, what are we supposed to do? And I think verses 25 and following move us from ourselves or from Jesus to ourselves. Listen again to those verses. Immediately after saying that, Jesus then says, whoever loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, if you've been around Crossridge for any any length of time, you will have heard me say on a number of occasions that Jesus isn't just our example, he's our Savior. And the emphasis is on the just part. He's not just our example, but he is our example. These verses remind us of that. Just as Jesus lived a life of service, self-denial and sacrifice, so we're to do. Interesting, if you actually read through the New Testament, you will find that Jesus is held out as our pattern to follow in every aspect of Christian ethics. So Jesus tells his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Elsewhere, we're instructed to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Or to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So what does it look like to follow the example of Jesus when it comes to these words here in John chapter 12? Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, it's very similar to what Jesus says elsewhere. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what does it mean to lose your life by loving it and to find your life by losing it? I think this speaks directly into our day and our obsession with ourselves. You know, we hear a lot about self-care in our day. I'm not against self-care. I think there's some practical realities about being better able to care for and serve others when we're in a good place physically and mentally and all of that. There's a reason the airplane announcement tells parents to put their oxygen masks on first before putting them on their children, right? If the parent passes out, both of you are in trouble. 
All of that makes sense. But self-care can easily become a mask for selfishness and self-indulgence. I mean, you don't really need to spend a whole day at the spa before you're ready to make your kids' lunches, right? See, Jesus' words here are at odds with so much of the messaging of modern culture. We're constantly told the way to find your life is to chase your dreams, not lose your life. Now, I've never watched the show This Is Us. From what I understand, every, every episode is designed to try to make people cry. It's not really my cup of tea. But someone pointed out a clip to me, and I thought I would take a look. If you're into it, I'm going to mess it up because uh, I know nothing about any of the characters or story or anything like that. But there is a scene where a character who's sort of the matriarch of the family has Alzheimer's. She's nearing death, and she gathers all of her adult children around and tells them, don't stop your life for me. I want you to live your lives and chase your dreams. Again, it's designed to be highly emotional. We're supposed to be moved by that and say, how noble. You know what's missing from that? The nobility of of losing your life by serving others. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ought to get as close to burnout as possible, but Jesus does call us to a life of self-sacrifice. The Apostle Paul's perspective on this in regards to his own life and ministry is helpful. Listen to what he wrote to the Philippian church. He said, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. See, Paul, Paul saw his life and his ministry as something being poured out into others. And that is a life worth living. Now, this is hard to do. Some of you know what it's like to care for aging parents. I mean, you know what it's like to build your schedule around the needs of others and care for them in the midst of deteriorating health or a deteriorating mental state at times. That is not a waste of time. Lots of you know what it is like to do that on the other end with young children. Raising kids requires lots of work, lots of sacrifice. So much of your time is taken up with changing diapers and making meals and dealing with skin knees and wounded hearts and teaching basic skills and driving to and fro. That is not a waste of time. And what's true in those areas is true in so many areas of life. The way to find your life is to lose it. For us too, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it does nothing. When we die to ourselves, something can be produced. And I would just say, I know it's hard to do, but it's so worth it. Our passage ends with these words from Jesus in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It was the missionary Jim Elliott who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose or that which he cannot lose. That's the call to us. That's the implication for Jesus' followers. We serve a king who gave his life, and we in turn give ours. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you this morning for the fact that Jesus is our king. He is the humble king who came on a donkey. He is the king who offers salvation to all the nations. And he is the king who has rescued us by his own blood. He has set us free from our prisons. And God, we pray we would live with Jesus on the throne, with him crowned in our lives. We pray we would work that out with fear and trembling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.